Welcome to Black Fashion History, the podcast that celebrates the contributions of Black people all around the world to the fashion industry. It's Black History, but make it fashion. And I'm your host, Taniqua Russ. Today, I'm highlighting supermodel, musician, and Tex Arcana native, Carol Collins-Miles. And Carol Collins-Miles was one of several Black American models who ventured into Paris to be a part of Givenchy's Black Cabine and ushered in an era of diversity in European couture fashion. And I can't wait for her to tell you all about her experience. Now, before we get too deep, I want to let you all know that you want to follow our Instagram page if you've not already. So make sure you're following us at Black Fashion History Podcast. Now, let's get into it. So how did your career as a model begin? Well, it actually began while I was at university, Texas Southern University at Houston, um, I, my husband and I were, um, taking classes and I, but it started much earlier, actually. Um, I, when I was really, really young, my mother, who was a gospel singer, and my dad were really stiffy dressers and I always admired the way they were fashion conscious and the way they dress and the jewels and the gloves and everything. And so when I was a preteen, my sister Doris, who was five years older than I, would photograph me. That was her hobby, photography. And she'd take me downtown and put we put on clothes in the dressing room and she photographed them. And she has books of this that she's kept of all of those old photographs. So I got the bug really early. And then in my teens, I would sort of design clothes that I wanted and take it, you know, take the little idea to a seamstress and, you know, have a, a dress made and a turban to match and little things like that. And uh, in my hometown of Texarkana, where I am now, Texarkana, Texas, Arkansas. I was actually born in Huddick, Arkansas, Union County, but I lived here since age one. When I would walk downtown, we'd go on Saturday downtown, you know, shopping and 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 go to Woolworths and integrate the counters and all of that. But whenever I was walking, people would always tell me, they would stand back and look at me, you should be a model. So I heard that so often in early years. And at University of, of um, Texas, uh, Southern, Texas Southern University in Houston, um, I got the same thing. You know, I just instinct with war costumes and people would, agree that I should model. And so finally, working part-time at the um, YWCA in the evenings as a, um, what do you call desk clerk, accountant, an accountant, sort of, um, Mildred Johnson in Houston, Texas, asked me to come and model in a fashion show for her. She was rehearsing there at the YWCA. And I did. Cannonball Adderley was playing at this tea fashion show in the garden in Houston. And I love music. You know, music has always been part of my family. And to combine, combine that fashion and music, 
I was really struck by it. When I would walk down the runway, Cannonball would play his baritone saxophone, <laughs> and I would move to the music. So I was bitten. And from there, I took a course that summer um, at Houston Modeling Academy School, and I began to work part-time as a, um, what we call a, um, a figure model for Cyclist Department Store for the newspaper, and two artists, women downtown, downstairs. And Bob Sackwitz, the owner of the Sackwitz department store, married a tall lady, Pam Sackwitz. And um, after uh, maybe a few weeks, he came down and asked me if I would model the couture clothes that he was buying because he would always buy the tall for his wife, or, you know, the largest, uh, taller designs. And I started with the Sackwitz department store. I signed with the agency Jerry Halpin, my first agent in Houston. From there, I would go drive over to Dallas, um, which is a few miles away, and work with the Kim Dawson agency and Neiman Marcus and and um, men, and while still taking holding down my English literature classes <laughs> at university, I um, I was invited to go to New York to model for Roberta de Camarina from a Houston boutique. The Hunt family had that in Houston, and uh, Dallas, sorry. And um, I did, and I signed then with Ellen Hart in New York. And on one of my later trips in, in 75, she asked me to go to Paris. If I would go to Paris to work for Givenchy, in his cabin that he was looking for black American models. And I told her I would consider it. I got back to Houston, and my husband was about to graduate, and uh, I wasn't going to graduate. I needed another semester. And so we decided to move to California, and I just didn't go. So we actually moved to uh, Los Angeles and lived in Orange County. He was an accountant. And um, I modeled there, and uh, that's really how my career started, modeling between uh, Houston and Dallas, and photography and runway shows, and then in L.A. with Mary Webb Davis, um, and um, I enjoyed doing that. I really enjoyed it, and I didn't think about going back to school. I still don't have my B.A., and but other things have become more important to me. But um, so that's how it started. So when you started modeling, did you think about it as a full time opportunity, or were you just like, this is something that I can do on the side while I continue my studies and then graduate? Yeah, I did think of it as a part time. Opportunity. I was um, had a part-time job while studying at TSU, so I saw that as a part-time job. But soon it became I became so in demand that I was I'm it it superseded my interest in in literature. I wanted to be a writer, and I've always wanted to be a writer. And I was even working as a fashion editor part-time for my uncle's fashion forward times in Houston while I was still going to school. 
But the modeling was so exciting and so much of my in my genes that I it took it took over as a full time occupation even in Houston and Dallas. So um and I never looked back actually. <laughs> never thought of going back to school, never even get wanted to. And um yeah, so it started out as part time, but something that was calling to me since since I was a child, actually. What was your experience like as a model? I know you started out in Texas, and then you and your husband moved to California. You were able to continue your career there as well. Uh, so what was it like modeling in the States? Well, in the beginning, in 74, 75, um, I found myself actually maybe the only black girl in the fashion shows. And it was, I didn't really have an idea of, of, um, the utter beauty that could be found in, in, in different fashions. Um, I only had my rudimentary desired designs and, um, and finally I met Pat Cleveland and Abba Chen that came to Dallas for for a Halston fashion show. And I really saw how much more exciting it could be even outside of even in New York to even on the New York design scene or the LA scene. So and even once I began modeling in New York and in in Los Angeles, I I still felt sort of unique. I still felt that, you know, I would go to New York and walk down the street and and, and the waters would part and, and all of that. And I <laughs> said, so, wow, you know, you know, do I have this, mag- this much magnetism? And so it, but it really, it was more of people regarding me. I didn't really understand my beauty and I didn't I didn't find that appreciation actually of my character of me as a black woman I felt in the fashion shows that I was you know some someone needed a black model you know mm-hmm. in order to in the 70s the peace and love and everything you had to have a black model or you had to have one Asian model so, so it was only after going to Paris that I really felt the impact of people appreciating you for for your character, for your 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 black ethnic beliefs and 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 mores, and it changed my life completely. I'd never known that type of freedom of of being yourself. And being appreciated wholly, not just an object to look at, but you know, and people interested in you as a person, and that changed everything. It really changed my life. And it's this sort of feeling like 
when you go into the desert and you see the stars and the planets so clear you can almost touch them, and you go back into the city and you can barely see them. And when I was in the Sahara photographing, I, you know, I would pray and dream that children around the world could see how beautiful nature really was. Because living in the cities, you don't really see that. Well, I felt in Europe the same way as my person. I was understood and appreciated in a way that has, had been somewhat clouded before. Um, it affirmed, I saw the affirmation of my being that I had held within myself, but hadn't really seen in the eyes of the beholder. Before I had seen, wow, she's different, she's beautiful, but it, I didn't feel like a, a, I felt like an object in America, you know. And, uh, yeah, and um, perhaps it was more of me becoming more mature as well, you know. But it was a great difference. So it was a great freedom, racial freedom in Europe that I didn't find in America. You mentioned earlier that you turned down your first opportunity to go to Paris and be a part of Givenchy's cabine. So how did you eventually make it to Europe from L.A.? Well, as I mentioned the first time, I turned it down because I, you know, I love my husband He's a great person. He's, you know, we love music. We we go to listen to jazz. And he's a cousin of Otis Williams, who founded The Temptation. And by the way, Otis is from Texarkana. They both are, uh-huh. but both he's are living in California. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. My parents were all about music, instructors and performers, and gospels, duets and quartets and travelers and all. And I, I was in the band and orchestra and junior high school and elementary flutophone. I, I love music and I still do. Right now I'm promoting Scott Joplin. I'm recording an album. Yeah, I'm still, still desperately, um, love music. But, um, so when he wanted to move to California because that was where he had been living before coming to Texas, we were marrying, and he's staying here to coming back home to go to college. And so I agreed to do that because I loved him so much, and I didn't want it to be with him. I couldn't think of going to Paris for two years, signing a two-year contract. And so once we, Givenchy came to Paris in 1977, two years later, and it was so fascinating Meeting him, he came with models Munya, Asamani, and Lynn Watt. Two black models came with him, and they. I I love meeting them, but most of all, he bear. He was such a gentleman. The clothes were fabulous. We went to dine. I love that he would hop over the table to sit next to me. You know, we just had fun. It was like a soul brother. You know, he's, he's, he has that soul feeling. He's a Pisces. Africa is Pisces, you know. I have a lot of Pisces. <laughs> My Aries is all in Pisces, you know. So all of, he has that black feeling and I just, I was really floored by that. Then, um, a week before 
Chantel Thomas had come to Los Angeles and she had, had her fashion show as well, her latest collection. And she had asked me to come to Paris as well. And I was thinking about Paris at that time. So when Huber asked me to come to Paris, I said yes. And, but I said I'd come for, you know, for his collection, for his next collection. And I wasn't signing up for the house to stay three months or two years or anything. And so, but once I got to Paris and he asked me to sign, I couldn't resist. Paris was so wonderful. Flew in on Sunday, April the 1st, 1978, and I had just decided I'm going. I went for you know, a few weeks, and I stayed for 16 years. <laughs> it was like that. And so I found myself. I loved it. I loved it. I, I loved it. I really did. And uh, I would fly back and to be with my husband. Sometimes we would meet in Palm Desert or around. Then he rejoined the Army and later came to Paris and asked for a divorce, and I gave it to him. He remarried um, a, a lady that was in the military uh, that was staying in, based in Germany with him, and they have three or four children. They're divorced now, but I'm happy that he had his sons and his daughters and I'm happy. I've never had children. I always feel like a, a developing baby. <laughs> I'm, always, I, I'm still raising myself, so I'm happy that he was able to do that. And I love Paris. I love being with Hubert. I love learning about beauty, about etiquette, about... I love... I, it was just... A, Wonderful. What was the reception like when the cabine first debuted in Paris? Right, and that was in the in spring of, of 1978. Um, I was there. Sandy, Sandy had come from Los Angeles. Um, Diane Washington, Lynn Watt. Um, and Michelle Demby was also there from, um, uh, as, as a rotating model, not in the cabin itself. And, um, we, she, but we had a wonderful time. Really, you know, when, when she, when she designs a, a dress or a garment, we do that together. You know, he's draping and he's asking how it looks. So, we, you know, we're suggesting different designs. And I was pulling on my childhood dreams there, you know. <laughs> we love that. So he had a great collection, and we felt very, it was so natural for us to wear those clothes because it was a collaboration. And Andre Leanne Talley at that time worked for John Fairchild's Women's Wear Daily Magazine. And which is, which still is a fashion bible, and it was then. And Andre was a friend of, of Hubert, and he was really amazed at our, at the way we model. From my first fashion show with Hubert in Paris, um, he put on a long gown, we were at the, at the, the chalet, Musee 
our museum of fashion, Musée du Mode. And he, he had me in a long black gown, slit to the waist, and very slinky. And that was his Prêt-à-Porter collection that I had come to, to work in, in, um, beginning of March. In April. It was two weeks after I had arrived, or less than two weeks. And so when I walked down the one, when we were in rehearsals, Hubert was saying, I want you to walk like Carol. Do like she do. <laughs> you know, because I, I was, I'm a very flamboyant person because I love music. And my mm-hmm. first fashion shows was, you know, letting all of my, my feelings flow with the music. And so when I walked out in that garment, the whole room stood, and it was a type of applause where they were stomping, and it was something that really launched a new era for Hubert, that really the way that um, Audrey Halpin would put on his clothes and dance like a ballerina, and she would, you know, she would stride in the clothes, and I loved meeting her in the atelier. She she used movement in her actions. Well, that was the way we and that show relaunched a, a, a freshness in his collection. And of course, that we were a cabin of five black models and one French countess who was also dark skinned with green eyes, <laughs> Sophie. <laughs> um, uh, Andre Lentelli adored it. So he coined the phrase, uh, la cabine noire, the black cabin of Givenchy. La cabine noire de Givenchy. The black cabin of Givenchy. And we were the only, and Hubert, we were the only fashion house. He was the only fashion house that had predominant, a predominant cabin of black models. A Munya, Hubert had discovered Munya. But she had, St. Laurent had enticed her away. (laughs) Normal. She went to work with with St. Laurent, and Hubert insisted that, you know, we, and when we signed our contract, we could not work with the house of St. Laurent. (laughs) That was, we, you know, it's us or St. Laurent. (laughs) And I adore St. Laurent. I had modeled with them in Houston and blah, blah, blah. um, Marina uh, Chibano, uh, wonderful. I stayed with her in New York and such. But at any rate, um, Munya and I think Shayla um, Edwards had worked for uh, Saint Laurent, East Saint Laurent, who we all adore. That's no problem. But we just couldn't work for him. And so, but we were the the only he was had had the only cabin of black models. So. It became known instantly because of the excitement of his designs, the excitement of our way of presenting, and our American black nationality. All of the other houses wanted to use black models. And Andre would splash us across Women's Wear Daily, and the other magazines would would pick up. And so I found myself doing editorial, I found myself photographing for Angaro, full collections, 
things that black models hadn't done before. And it was, it kind of changed things in a way. Before there were the photographic models, the cover girls, and the runway models, the runway girls. And you never saw Janice or Beverly or any of the photo models on the runway. But after our season with Givenchy and the fact that we were doing, runway models were doing editorial work, it changed everything. And that even ushered in the era of the 80s of models that were runway models and editorial models and cover girls. And it gave, it gave us, at that point, the supermodels. Mm, well, uh, where that term comes from. Yeah, yeah. Because um, at that point, um, models, there, were, there was no bounds between the cover girls, editorial, and runway models. So it really changed the industry, but it changed profoundly for our, our black models. And because I was, at the time when I went to Paris, I was 20, nearly, I was 27. Um, I would be, I had just turned 27. So I felt more like a mom. So when I got there, you know, it was like <laughs> champagne only backstage for the models for the shows, you know. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> you know, I'm the healthy, you know, I'm the health food, you know, vegetarian. Okay, we need water, we need orange juice. And we had, you know, we demanded things like that, which helped all of the girls. And I also demanded higher pay for, which allowed Linda eventually say, I don't get out of bed for less than $10,000, you know. Um, so it really, it really changed, we changed a lot in, 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 in the fashion industry from France, which came back to America as well, and around Europe as well. So, I mean, I found it was so many designers at that point asking for black models during 1978. And so many young models came to Europe, to Paris. And so when I first arrived, you could walk down the street and barely see a black model, other, another black model. And during the summer of 78, and by the end of 78, <laughs> the collection in October, there were black models everywhere because Andre had launched the black cabin and all the, the, the houses were bringing in black models from America, and which was a great, great thing. And then in the early 90s, that opened the way for African models. So my friend Katusha and other girls, uh, Naomi, who were like, you know, they were coming up through the ranks, but it really opened the door for black models. That you see right now today, that same launch of African models. So it was a, it was a pivotal a pivotal time uh, in the fashion industry, and um, as I was saying, so many. Americans came that a friend, one of my model friends, Olivia Chapman in New York, who worked with a lot with Bill Blass and, and others, 
asked me if I wanted to open a restaurant in Paris with her friend who had a restaurant, a German, Klaus Canabra, and a French guy, Alan, the lawyer. And I did. So in 79, I opened the um, restaurant. I, we went in and changed the Thailand restaurant for the Shea Carol in Babylon uh, one. And I put in a stage where everyone can come and sing. So we had singers, Tommy Garrett, Dave Stewart, um, who finally recorded with the Eurythmics right there in Paris on the eight track. Um, and others did come. And so we had models who were singing. And on stage, when I performed, I was always lip singing. So there was, I was, I was the model dub, the model who sang all the time. And <laughs> I just have this music in my genes and I just, when I hear music, it takes me away. So, um, we, um, when Beverly Johnson uh, recorded these boots are made for walking, she came to debut at the restaurant. So we had a great time. Then in 80, I opened the second club, uh, Carol's Paradise, a couple of blocks away, right in the layout area where all of the shows were held in big tents, layout. And so it was really a lot of fun. And I was able to receive people other than in my apartment, you know. <laughs> and on Sunday, we'd have church service um, periodically. And so it was a great time. We, we were all the expat, expatriate Americans <laughs> coming in for the shows and, and a lot of us living there. Well, your Burgess and a lot of others. So it was a great time. Yeah, sounds like an amazing time. <laughs> I do want to go back to something that you said earlier. So you talked about, you know, being able to demand higher pay. And that's something I had a question about, especially when, you know, the use of black models became more popular in that time. You know, were right. black models being paid comparable to their, you know, non-black counterparts? Yes. Yes, they were. And even um, higher than, than some at times during that period. So we were well compensated. And the fees went up because it was sort of pulling in you know, we were doing editorial, we were doing so, we were in demand in runway and photography. Um, and so it, uh, we were paid correctly. Absolutely. Oh, that's great. Cause that's not always yeah. the case. <laughs> yeah, 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 but that was, it really opened the eyes of a lot of people to, to the beauty and capabilities and value of black and black American models. Do you think that has maintained over the years, or uh, would you say that that's changed? Well, it wavers. It goes back and forth, you know. Um, during the uh, late 80s and, well, during actually the beginning of the 90s, it was more of, it went back, swung back, less black girls and less black American girls, and the trend went to um, starting to go to Africa. Well, during that phase, that changeover, it was mostly white models. 
only a few black models that were really working then. Tyra came at the time of Tyra Banks, and and Naomi was really getting her foot in correctly. Um, but it, you know, the whole crowd of of, of model black African American models were not working much. Um, and then the African models really got a foothold in the mid-90s. And so that, you know, that gave them a foothold. And they many are making comparable salaries. So when did you decide to transition from modeling to singing? Well, I... In 1993, um, I my band was going well. I had done the New Year's Eve at Hot Rock Cafe. I, I love rock music, Jimi Hendrix and all of the guys and all that, and Tina Turner and the Temptations and all that. And so I I took an assignment to go on a cruise. And which actually, yeah, that was later, 93, 94 was Hot Rock Cafe in January. And in May, I went on a cruise playing Josephine Baker and French cruise to Russia, the Baltic, all, all up the Baltics and back, and to Leningrad back. And I love singing Josephine. Of course, we have the Italian orchestra. We had, I had the dancers and everything. And there was a um, patron of an opera aboard. And they said, you really should be an opera singer. Um, so returning from that cruise, I started training with uh, Camille Chappelle for the Paris Opera. She's the vocal trainer for the Paris Opera. She loved my voice, but forbid me to do any other walk music. So I only did jazz shows, <laughs> and I stopped smoking, and things were going along pretty well. And then near fall, I started smoking again. And I was just disappointed. I said, well, I need to regroup. I'll think about it. And all, I had prayed ever since I'd gone to Paris. My dad died in 79. And I had prayed to to really promote music more, to promote my music more, perform more. And when I was in Europe, everyone knew of Scott Joplin, who is from my hometown of Texarkana. Scott Joplin is a king of ragtime composers. And the, at the turn from 18, he was born in 1868, died in 1917, the year my mother was born, actually, in New York. And he was died in New York. And he composed the most wonderful music, and he was the first American composer to become a rock star. He, his Make Believe Rag was the first song in America to ever sell a million copies. And so he was rediscovered in late 70s again by the general public when they made the movie The Sting and used his music. So I would come home, and people would barely know who Scott Joplin was. They just put up a mural in 76, at the year the movie was released. And I, I would go back to Paris, and I love that. So, you know, it's, it's not an intellectual snobbery or anything. 
people in Europe love quality things, you know, and they knew every song that he had had, had, had ever composed and pumped, they knew everything about Scott Joplin, so I actually prayed to come home and promote Scott Joplin. So, in, in 94, I came home for, for uh, Thanksgiving, and I decided I'm just going to stay in America, promote Scott Joplin, and see where and see if that's something I could really make an impact doing. And that's what I've been doing. And how are you enjoying that compared to your modeling days? I love production. Even when modeling in 1980, I put on Models in Concert, a grand production. With models singing for the end of the collection, you know, all of the fashionistas and everything, or grand dinner. And so I love producing music events that have a thing with fashion. So I'm doing that, you know, twice a year, combining fashion with music, promoting Scott Joplin, um, helping with fashion shows and training sororities, <laughs> you know, different sororities and, and Michael Turney Agency and Shreveport that's not too far away. So I, I enjoy doing that, and I'm just loving it. I've made a documentary in 2017-18 on the history of Scott Joplin. I'm getting ready for the second sequel to that. Um, we're writing uh, my book of scripts on the black, <laughs> on the, uh, the black, Jubilee's Black Cabin, which we hope to all do in a group. So we're all writing, we're all writing our versions to make the right to gather the right screenplay for that. And so I'm, you know, I'm, I feel a creative person. I do miss some of the galas. <laughs> the galas here, we have a wonderful Perot Theater, which is deemed the most beautiful in Texas. Um, Ross Perot, who is from this city, or renovated it. So, or I used to go to cinema when I was a kid. Um, so we have galas, but it's not the same. And so I was in Harlem in 2019, um, the artist and designer, um, Mikhail Kilgore, um, made a hundred paintings dedicated to Josephine Baker. Beautiful. The guy is so talented. And his sweet and Kilgore a couture collection as well. He's really a, a sort of a genius. So he had an exhibit, the debut exhibit reception in Harlem at the Alhambra Ballroom in September 28th of 2019. And he honored um, the Givenchy Black Cabin. And so um, all of the um, our cabin members, Sandy, Diane, Michelle, and I, and then all of the black models who worked for him at that time, all, it must have been a dozen. And it was a wonderful evening. And I was able to sing Josephine Baker's Je des Amours. Beautiful. I love that song. Je des Amours. Well, and in, my soprano because I'm a member of the chorale here and I'm high soprano. So I'm, my training in opera 
it's really aiding me now. <laughs> so I still love my 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 rock and jazz blues bass of my album. But uh, that was wonderful being back in New York performing, and we had a great time. Well, for my final question, if you could narrow it down to one or two, <laughs> what would you say is the most significant? or has been the most significant moment of your career? I would say spending time with Shibonshi, knowing him, learning from him. He was like a mentor to me. Um, we would dine, we would dance, he would come to my home for dinner. We just, we had wonderful times together and he taught me what it meant to appreciate beauty and to respect that in others as well. Um, I just learned so much from him. I love him so much. It was so difficult when he died. That was the most um, potent event of my, my life, was spending time with him. And that's it, guys. Thanks again for tuning into another episode of Black Fashion History. If you love what you heard, and I know that you did, make sure to follow us on all podcasting platforms and on social media at Black Fashion History Podcast. You can also find us on our website at www.blackfashionhistory.com. But of course, above all else, tune again next week for another Black Fashion History installment. Bye-bye. <laughs>